So Arjuna was in this position. This is his real position. His victory is assured. His success is assured. It's a matter of time. And even though, as we'll see, there were some bumps in the road, there was some difficulty. He had had difficulty getting started. It's 18 chapters until he says, Yes, <laughs> I understand. I'm going to fight. And why I'm going to fight, and so forth. So Krishna Rishikesh and uh, Arjuna is Gudakesh. So Gudakesh means one sense, one meaning is who conquered sleep. Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur gave a novel understanding of Gudakesh. She said, Gud a ka isha. Gud or Gur means Jagari, sweet, like Gurdiya Vaishnavism, sweet Vaishnavism. So he says, Gud means. Jagari, and A means Vishnu. Krishna has said, of letters, I am A in 10th chapter. A. It is so easy to say. You can say it in sleep. A. And good A. Ka means Brahma. Like Bhim, Ka means Brahma. And Isha means Shiva. Vishnu Chakvaritakura said that Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, they all become pleased, like tasting something sweet upon seeing Arjuna on the chariot with Krishna, Rishikesh. And they become affectionate towards Arjuna. Chakravati Thakur quotes the example of Srimad Bhagavatam in which Vishnu stole the sons of the Brahmana repeatedly and Arjuna came and made a vow. Every time this Brahmin's son was born, he would disappear. The Brahmana went before the Chetri of the king leaders and said, you're supposed to be ruling in such a way that persons like myself who are following religious principles, Brahmins, are protected. But every time a son is born, it just disappears in thin air. So he said the integrity of the whole Chatriya race is, dynasty is a, a question here. Well, you tell that to a Chatriya and you're going to get a response. So Arjun was a Chatriya through and through, a warrior and chivalrous, and he came forward and he said, I will find those sons. And if I don't, what did he say? I'll take my life, my own life. So he went and he searched and he couldn't find the sons. And he was prepared to take his life, but Krishna wouldn't allow Arjuna to take his life. He said, you come with me, we'll go. And they went, Krishna and Arjuna. They penetrated out through the universe and they came to the Vishnu Lok, which is in the universe but beyond it at the same time. And, and there they had the darshan of Vishnu. And there were all the sons. And what did Vishnu say? I wanted to get your personal darshan, Krishna and Arjun, what you are, the two of you, what you mean to the world, what a sweet, what a, how sweet is your relationship, and I'm affectionate to you. And these gods are all gunavatars, Vishnu, Shiva, Brahma. That means they're in charge of the gunas. That means, in that respect, they don't tend to show a lot of affection to people, partiality and sweetness and so forth. So Chakrabarti Padvishwanath Thakur, he said, this is very extraordinary, that this name of Gudakesh is used, it means that Arjuna was so wonderful, positioned as he was with Krishna on the chariot, that all these gods, the Gunavatars, were affectionately disposed towards him. That means his position is beyond the modes of nature. Arjuna, actually, his real position. So again, he has to be victorious. He's in a Gudakesh. 
He's a conqueror of sleep, but he's in a sleep that Krishna has put him in a mystic sleep so that he can be instrument through which Krishna instructs all of us in Bhagavad Gita. So the Rishikesh, the conqueror of the senses, was ordered by Gudakesh, the conqueror of sleep, and without any question he pulled his chariot between the two armies. Let me read a little bit from the commentary. Krishna's irony implies in jest what is the use of just looking at the enemy? Because Arjuna is saying, let's see what's going on here. Who's here? Who's assembled to fight? Interestingly, he said in the previous verse, who is along with this evil-minded Dhritarashtra? So he knew that Dhritarashtra was evil-minded. At this point in Bhagavad Gita, you have to recall now, Arjuna has come to fight this big, be engaged in this battle against people who have been inimical to him and his family and envious and for wrong reasons they've usurped the kingdom and so forth. So he's a chhatri. He's he's ready to fight. Arjuna is never one to back down from a fight. So now you should question why he's backing down from this fight. Krishna's reasoning, well, what do you want to just look at the armies for? You're supposed to be a fighter. Well, why do you want to look around? What's there to look at? Bhishma's blown his conch, the challenge. We've responded. So here I drove you up here, fine, here we go, but what, what do you want to look at? Just look for. Thought you were a fighter. This way he's poking him a little bit. Krishna chuckled at the plight of Arjun, detecting a reluctance in Arjun that he himself had caused. I mean, certainly it is mystical and one Arjun would not want to fight. And that he would be give the reasons that he does give, which we'll hear about later something, he's an extraordinary person as we're hearing, and the kind of ignorance that he appears to be in, to ask the questions that he does, it's telling. We're in that kind of ignorance. Arjuna's been placed in it for our sake, so it can be revealed to us what is our own plight and necessity. Arjuna was known for having conquered sleep, Gudagesh, but now Krishna begins to put him into a mystic sleep of divine illusion and apparent material attachment so that this conversation can take place. As Rishikesh, the master of the senses, Krishna will awaken Arjuna from the illusion of life centered on the interaction between the senses and sense objects. He does so by teaching him how to control his senses, which gives rise to knowledge of the self and God and the dynamic union of the two in love. Now, Krishna stops the chariot in front of the two members of opposition who are most dear to Arjuna. Bhishma, his grandfather, and Drona, his teacher, his guru. He thus draws on Arjun's family sentiments, as he did further by describing all of the soldiers as members of the same family, the Kurus, and addressing Arjun as Partha, son of the sister of Krishna's father. So why is this so important, this verse? It's so important for reasons we've been describing, but more so for this second part of the verse and what Krishna says. What he did and what he said. What did he do? He drew the chariot up, just like he was ordered to. But where did he stop it? Right in front of Bhishma, right in front of Drona. The two persons most dear to Arjuna on the other side. He's most concerned about his grandfather who raised him, his guru who taught him military arts and science, how he's so indebted to them and so attached to them. So what has Krishna done? What do we understand from this? What is the first thing 
that Krishna will reveal to us, not Manjari Bhav, but Maitunya Bhav, our attachments. This is what is being told here. First thing that Krishna will show us is our material attachments. And what's the first thing we will do? Look the other way and read on. The thing we don't want to hear, that's what we should hear. Most people don't get really past this verse. Or it takes lifetimes to get past this verse. They may read on and collect a lot of information and so forth, cite so many shlokas, but they never deal with what Krishna's bringing up right here. Why did Arjun, the great warrior, not want to fight? He's going to give a thousand reasons, but the reason is his attachment to these people, these friends, family members. Krishna says, Jasiva Partha, all the Kurus assembled here. Arjuna said, bring the chariot up between the two armies so I can see who's assembled here under the direction of the evil-minded Dhritarashtra and wants to fight. At that point, he was seeing, well, there's the Dhritarashtra, this is the, the enemy side and so forth. But to magnify the reality of Arjuna's attachment, Krishna says, so, say all the Kurus are assembled here. He says, in other words, all your family members. Look at all this was here. Your whole family's here. Your uncles and granduncles and nephews and cousins. That's here. So you ready? <laughs> and Arjuna, of course, says, no, I mean, wait a minute. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to go. Wait a minute. I don't know. This is a good idea that we should, we should fight. And so the rationalization that more or less covers the balance of the chapter comes. People think that Arjun gave many good reasons why he shouldn't fight, but their reasons are they're not good at all. They're all based on one thing, attachment. His attachment means his identity. So if he has to fight with these people, it's killing himself. Because our sense of I is based on our association, and it's relative because our association changes. We may be a fiancé, and then by circumstances we become married. We become a wife. By identification with the son, we become a mother. By loss of the husband, we become a widow. Our circumstances change. So our sense of self is based on our attachments. What we consider mine is what we consider me, what I am. And our sense of identity based on such attachments is not what we are at all. And our attachments change, our association changes. It's a huge identity crisis. Why Arjun didn't want to go forward? Because fighting with Bhishma was like killing himself. What would be the meaning? And he's going to say it. If I slay everybody and I'm left alone. If I don't have my friends, my relatives, and then there's no me. So our whole sense of identity is based on friends, relatives, family, and so forth, material life, based on our attachments. And if we can slay those attachments with the knowledge that we have another identity that doesn't change, that's changeless, that's based on Partha. Krishna is addressing Arjuna as Partha here. He's saying, here are all the gurus, all your relatives, all your family that you're supposed to fight with. Partha. Partha means, I'm also related to you. Partha. And Partha means uh, in relation to, uh, to Kunti. So Krishna is saying, I'm also related to you. I want you to fight. And who am I? We have a relationship. 
So what's indicated here is we all have a relationship with Krishna, and that's real. And the other sense of identity based on other attachments, it's not real. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Today your mother, tomorrow you may be a son of somebody. And who can say, who? Dealing with this is the beginning of spiritual life. So as I said, from the high point of being a devotee who can order Krishna around, who Krishna is in love with and conquered by, we go to this bottom end. And we understand how far we have to go, or at least what the very first hurdle is, and it's a biggie, to get over, to become what it really means to be a devotee and conquer Krishna and love Krishna in such a way that even formalities are dispensed with and so forth. There's so much value in focusing on this verse for all of us. If we can deal with this, have faith in Rishikesh, Krishna, the sense that we've heard we have a relationship with him. He's a chutta. He will never fail us, never let us down. Everything else, everyone else will in some respect invest ourselves entirely in his service to the best of our capacity in spite of our weaknesses, focus ourselves where we are accurately on the path and be sincere and make progress. Gradually. It's gradual. It's step by step. Arjuna is a great devotee, but he's, he's showing us how to go from the beginning to the end. We can focus on this and sincerely apply ourselves here. And it's possible. It seems impossible to conquer over material attachments. It really does, but it's possible. It really is possible. Arjuna's showing us in Bhagavad Gita, and he's showing us that and Krishna's telling us this is the first thing we have to deal with. In other words, we have to practice Krishna consciousness looking for advancement in terms of this. We have to face in a battle these material attachments, this false identity. There's so much room for trying to escape from that and to rationalize and go on a, a, a detour. This is Bhagavad Gita. This is hitting us right, right in the, between the eyes here. And we're just tend to duck and find a detour and somehow stay in the ballpark. But like I said, if we listen sincerely, we'll hear what we need to hear. But to be honest and hear that and digest that, that means die to live. Shri Dhamma used to say, die to live. And he chuckled once and he said, it's beautiful poetry, but it's a bitter pill to swallow. Everyone liked Jai Guru Maharaj, die to live. Jai nothing. Why don't you die to live? <laughs> don't just go and repeat it. A friend of mine, a godbrother of mine, put it on his license plate, die to live, driving through town. People used to stop and ask him what it meant. And I guess he realized, what's the point? I'm not doing that. So he took it off his license plate. But what does it mean? Well, you, you, got a, you got 18 chapters <laughs> to talk about? <laughs> you got some time? So from this point then, as I say, Arjuna begins now to rationalize why he shouldn't fight. And we see so many good reasons surface, religious reasons, logic, so many things. Our attachments can give us so much fuel, intelligence. When attachment lust is in the intelligence, then it works wonderfully to support those attachments, to give good reason for them and so forth. The whole Bhagavad Gita, Krishna just cutting through all of this. He's patiently almost amused listening to Arjuna. All of his rationalizations that are given in here in the first chapter, in one verse in the second chapter, when Krishna begins to speak, he dismisses every one of them. Arjuna 
falters a little bit, tries to come back, and he knows, oh, I've got nothing <laughs> to say here, really. Krishna smashes him, he surrenders, to said, I accept you as my guru. And But then, of course, the question continues. Krishna had this, Arjuna had the sense to ask questions, not to remain silent. So let me read a couple more verses, and we'll stop before Arjuna actually starts to give all the rationalizations. We'll continue with that in the next class. In text 26, he says, There Partha saw among both parties, fathers, grandfathers, teachers, maternal uncles, brothers, sons, grandsons, as well as friends. He saw in-laws and companions on both sides, and thus thought deeply about all of his relatives assembled therein. So as I mentioned previously, he said, draw the chariot up and let's see who's assembled here under the direction of the evil-minded Dhritarashtra. At that time he was seeing there's Dhritarashtra and his group and, and there's us, the Pandavas. There's the Pandavas and there's the Kurus. And, but now he says, actually, he, he, Krishna has arranged it such that he's seeing them all in terms of being relatives. And, and again, he, the idea of fighting with them is like, is like committing suicide. If he's to slay them, he, he slays his own identity, which is only based on his identification with them, on his attachment to them. When the son of Kunti, Arjun, saw all his kinsmen, he was overcome with great compassion. Filled with despair, he began to speak. So here the word Vishidan, despair, is what this chapter's title is drawn from. Here we begin to hear about Vishada Yoga, which is, again, the title of the chapter, the Yoga of Despair. There's a great possibility, it means, that from the depths of despair and hopelessness, something wonderful can come. Sometimes it's said you have to reach the bottom before you can go up. So. Arjuna is really bottoming out here. The prospect that lies before him is, is not at all encouraging. You couldn't find a more discouraged person than Arjuna. And all of us have been discouraged at some time by the odds that, that seem to have lined up against us. We should take heart from Arjuna. Arjuna was so competent, so powerful of a Chhatri, he said he could fight with thousands of men at the same time and be victorious. Such a blue-blooded royal person of such dignity, chivalry, and charisma. He's crumbling here. Such is the power of material attachment. And such is the strength of detachment. As much as it pulls on our heart to overcome our material attachments, to separate ourselves from them, and we think it will weaken us, the fact of the matter is it will strengthen us. Now, we should understand that there has to be a point where we really understand what's being said here, what the theory is, and then we take the steps to do what's necessary. That leap of faith, it's not really into the darkness. This is light. The whole Bhagavad Gita is light. Of course, it's just in paper or it's embodied in others and so forth, but it's there, it's tangible, it's real. What is that saying about faith? You have reached the point of faith where you know that if you leap, there's either going to be firm ground or you're going to learn how to fly. 
and take the leap. Nothing risked, uh, nothing gained. We think, oh, we'll risk everything and there'll be no gain, possibly. What will my position be? Even in the sixth chapter, Arjuna asked this kind of a question. Where will I be in terms of dharma? If I give up, go against the dharma, where will I be in terms of yoga? If I fail in this, what you're telling me, you're telling me to forego dharma shastra and, and take to bhakti. If I forego dharma, I have no position there. And if, what if I fail in bhakti yoga? What will be my position there? <laughs> Krishna says just the opposite. You have position in both worlds. Even if you fail, such is the nature of this practice. If you make this kind of an effort, even if you're unsuccessful, you'll get a high birth. As high as you could get in the realm of Dharma, you go to heaven. And coming down from there, take birth in a rich and aristocratic family. And your proclivity for yoga practice, they will come to aid you also, pick up where you left off and take you on. You'll have standing in both paths, he says. What does he say? He says, one who does good, my friend, Shri used to translate it, one who is sincere, Krishna says, tata, it's a very affectionate term, my friend, it's like my son. One who, who is sincere, my friend, my son, will never be overcome by evil, rest assured. This is Krishna speaking. Who is this Krishna? We said, study Bhagavad Gita and see what he says about himself. Many people may claim to be God, but how he has explained that he's God? What is his position? He has explained the whole of the material nature and how it works. What is its fabric, the gunas, how they interact, how the whole thing manifests, what are its basic elements. We have senses. This is the basic idea of the basic elements. We have senses and their elements that correspond with them. That's the world. Because it's the world of our senses. He's explained the world so nicely. He's above it. He says, it's coming from me. There are many people may say they're God or whatever, or people say someone else is God, but what God has explained in Bhagavad Gita, what Krishna has explained, we can understand. This is God. He says, Tathagachati, my friend, oh, you will never fail. So we get a proper understanding. We try and try, put it in practice. We will be successful. Take a leap. Make a jump. There's firm ground there, or as I said, you will learn to fly. You will be taught to fly. So from despair, we've all experienced it. No one could be more of a despairing person than Arjuna. And again, this is the power of material attachment. Such a powerful person is just humbled and, and humiliated here by his attachment. We'll hear, he's shaking. He's going to shake. He's going to quiver. He's going to drop his bow. Something he vowed never to do. So on the one hand, what is the power of attachment? And we should draw from that. What is the power of detachment? You become superhuman. Superhuman. Vishada Yoga. Yeah, he was overcome with compassion. A good quality, but it's, of course, it's material compassion. So put in perspective, it's basically attachment. But some people who were in a similar position, like Duryodhana, they had no compassion. So although it's an attachment that's giving rise to this compassion, in that sense it's undesirable, still it shows the good quality of Arjuna, basic good qualities of Arjuna, compared to Duryodhana. He had no compassion. He was also facing family members. He was one of them also. Then, let us read a little further. Arjuna said, O Krishna, 
Seeing my own relatives preparing to fight with one another, my limbs are quivering, my body trembles, my mouth is drying up, my hair is bristling, my bogondiva is slipping from my hand and my skin burns. I'm unable to keep my composure and feel as though I'm losing my mind. Okay, Shiva, I can see only misfortune ahead. So as I said, he's in the abyss of despair and he will go from there to the highest, brightest prospect of life. Madhusudan Saraswati comments that the use of the name Krishna here indicates that Arjuna is calling upon Krishna as the one who has the power to remove all sorrow of his devotees, being of the nature of eternal bliss. So here the very name Krishna itself is being used, O Krishna. So we learn from this verse, this is Arjuna's utterance now. He asked Krishna to draw the chariot. He saw the circumstances. He saw his attachments. Krishna put them right in front of his face. He started trembling and quivering, faltering, falling into despair, and calling out Krishna. So we should do this. We are all in great despair. If we're not, we should be. And we should call out the name of Krishna. The idea is that here we find Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching here in Bhagavad Gita, Nam Dharma. There is nothing better than this in this age. There's something more powerful. No more powerful remedial measure than chanting the holy name of Krishna. O Krishna. Although Arjuna's love has the power to subordinate Krishna, Krishna's acceptance of a subordinate role does not change his position as God. The love that such devotees possess is the gift of God bestowed upon those who desire nothing more. From within the compact of that love, Krishna bewilders Arjuna to think in terms of lesser concepts, such as material gain, religious considerations, and liberation. Still, the good heart of Arjuna shines forth even as he exemplifies the plight of an illusioned being. Remembering the prowess of Krishna when he killed Keshi, the last demon in Braj before he ventured to Mathura, Arjuna, while expressing doubts, demonstrates his confidence in Krishna's ability to destroy them. Arjuna spoke with humility, as Keshi, the mad horse who attacked Krishna in Braj, represents false pride. He addresses him as Krishna and as Keshava. In the last verse here. The great warrior Arjuna is brought to tears. The thought of fighting with his relatives humbled, he takes shelter of his friend Krishna. After sincerely expressing his reservations about fighting, arising from a sense of material compassion and piety, he reasons further as to the futility of battle. It was as though he read Krishna's mind, who was thinking, but if you fight, you'll get a kingdom. O Krishna, I do not see how any good can come from killing my relatives in battle. I have no desire for victory, a kingdom, or the pleasure derived from attaining these things. Here again, Arjuna evokes the name of Krishna. Krishna and his name are one and the same, yet the holy name of Krishna is more compassionate manifestation of himself. His holy name is capable of removing all sorrow of all souls. In this verse, Arjuna implies that Krishna, and more so the holy name of Krishna alone, can remove his sorrows apparent in this and succeeding verses. So now Arjuna is going to express his attachments in a form of rationalizing why he should not deal with them. All these verses ahead should be seen as that. They're rationalizations to avoid dealing with the battle that Krishna wants him to take part in. At the same time, as I said, they also show his, in some senses, his good qualities, and that he's approaching Krishna, he's asking questions. In that respect, he's not like Duryodhana, who has no compassion, no 
driven only by, obsessively by its attachments and no sense of taking shelter of Krishna. So I want to stop here and in the next classes, I think we may get to the end of this first chapter going over Arjuna's rationalizations and dissecting them in terms of their, how they are such and what good can also be drawn from the points that he, that he does make. Any questions? I should uh, con- make a confession to you that I wanted to end a little early tonight because I'm leaving early in the morning with all this talk of family attachments. I'm going to see my mother, <laughs> actually. So it doesn't mean that we have to, uh, and some of us used to think like that. I remember the first letter I wrote to my parents when I had joined the Hare Krishna movement, preaching to them about material attachment, family attachment, and so forth. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't mean that. It means we have to put Krishna in the center. That's all. We have to have relationships with others based on a sense of identifying ourselves as servants of Krishna, ultimately, ideally, and in pursuance of that. And then all so many relationships that become meaningful. Yes? Um, when Arjuna became uh, overwhelmed with compassion and you know, he started exhibiting all these you know, heavy emotions, um, it brought to mind my, you know, my state right now. I felt like a few years ago I used to be a lot more sensitive, you know, when I was living with my guru in New York. And um, to the struggle, you know, like there's these two battles, this battle being fought between the two armies, and I have a lot more sense of that struggle in my life. Right now I'm feeling a lot more uh, dull in a sense. You know, I'm here listening to you and I'm feeling like, wow, I've really lost a lot of my sensitivity that I had when I was, you know, being directly engaged by my guru. And my question is just what... What's something I can do right now to start cultivating that sensitivity again? To, you know, that moment-to-moment uh, battle that's going on, recognizing like Arjuna's feeling it. Well, relative to what you say, if you were living with your guru, a close association and so forth, obviously you're on the front burner. <laughs> but because of your attachments and desires, and now you're on the back burner. Mm-hmm. So somehow you have to make connection with the front burner. That means that obviously the, pur- the import, the purport of what you're saying is that by good association with someone who's in the fire, we start to cook also. It's a gradual process. But if you say, if I walk in the kitchen and I say, when is dinner? And you say, well, it's coming gradually, but you haven't even got anything on the stove. Then I say, well, you got to put it on the stove. Then gradually it will cook. So stove means, fire means an association of someone, an advanced devotee. So there's nothing to replace that but that's going to, that you're going to do at this stage that's going to make you as enthusiastic as that. That is what makes us enthusiastic. It's good company. So seek it as much as possible. That's what you have to do. And you can't live in that situation. You're a working man now. You're married and so forth. So you have to you have to find time for that as much as possible. And there's there's opportunity for that. This is just such an opportunity. You came up and visited me. That was an opportunity. You should do those type of things. And if and even in your own situation, if you're enthusiastic enough to have that company, then there will be persons sympathetic to give you company. But nothing. Will, there's no. There's no other thing. Just like we have for persons who are associated with me in that situation, then we have CDs that we give every month. They can listen to the classes, like this one and others, and so forth. 
as many as they want in a month, and that's that kind of thing is very helpful. So there are ways, to, like in our sangha on the internet, we try to provide some. People can ask questions. We answer the questions, feelingly and a matter of fact, and and so forth. And people are nourished by that. It's for people who aren't able to live in close proximity and in, in good company. I mean, we should have good company in general, but company of advanced devotees. Uh, there's nothing that can help us more than that. So you try to factor that into your life. If married people, for example, each of them each of them should be more attached to a spiritually advanced person than they are to one another. And that will make for a really good family relationship, a meaningful one. So that's what you have to do. And of course, if you can put those things that they talk about into practice. At some point, reading will be useful. At some point, it may not be as useful. If we get enough good company, then reading can be useful. Then we can read and we can understand. We can read and misunderstand. That's very easy to do. The devil can quote the scripture, as they say. At a certain point, reading won't be that helpful to us. If we know something, we understand, we get some experience, then reading will be more useful. So it depends on where we are in our development, of course, how we will take advantage of association. But for you, personal company of a advanced devotee, there's no replacement for that at this point. Another question? Yes. You're talking about last, that last time you were talking, and I noticed it on the, on the uh, cover of your book about how the Kurukshetra was the place where Krishna yeah. years earlier had seen the residents of Raja. And I'm I'm a little apprehensive that this might be a bad question, like improper mixing of mellows and everything. But is there any information about what the residents of Raj were doing at the time of the battle, 50 years later? Yeah, they were already gone. They already went back to Golok. Krishna came to Mathura to kill Dantavakra. That's the last demon he killed. And Balaram was dispatched during Kurukshetra War to the south to deal with Rama Arhashana and Balbala. So by the time Kurukshetra war was going on, there was still a lot of demonic influences, but actually Krishna's heart had gone to Braj, and Arjun did all the killing. Krishna lost himself at the end of Bhagavad Gita. Speaking about what he did, it having reached the zenith of Braj Prem, Krishna ended Bhagavad Gita. He became speechless. Arjun then killed the rest of the demons, which was the mission of the avatar. And before the Bhagavad Gita, as I said, Krishna had killed Dantavakra. He was so close at that point to Vrindavan. He's in Mathura. Because Dantavakra was staying in Mathura and he didn't come to Dwarka because he reasoned, I'll get Krishna to come here and he'll be on, on uh, visiting turf, so he thought, rather than in Dwarka where he lives with all his armies. Little did you know that Mathura was more home, <laughs> home-like than Dwarka for Krishna. And he said, I'll fight him with a club because I saw that instead of killing Jarasand in 18 battles, he was unsuccessful in killing Jarasand. It was Bhima who killed him and with a club. That means Krishna's not good at fighting with a club. So I'll fight him with a club. That's how he reasoned. So Krishna went, he dealt with that Dantavakra, who was, of course, Jai, one of Jai Vijay. So the mission is finished, really. So close to Vrindavan, he came across the Jamuna, collected everybody up, took them to Golok. 
in an almost complete form, manifestation of himself, he went to Golok. And in a most complete form, he remained invisible in Braj, on earth, where he always is, in his most complete form. And then in a partial manifestation of that, he got in a chariot and rode back to Dwarka. And then the battle of Kurukshetra took place. But that Krishna, who's a Dwarkadish Krishna, he's dear Prashanta. And Brajananda Krishna is dear Lalita. They have different moods. But inside Dwarkadish Krishna, some partial manifestation of that Brajananda Krishna is there. Therefore, we have Krishna in Dwarka, in the arms of Rukmini, at night, dreaming, calling out Radha. Oh. So that Dwarkadish Krishna coming to Kurukshetra, he was there previously. Gopis and inhabitants of Vrindavan came. Intimate talks they exchanged there. Krishna confessed at that time, my heart is with you forever, wherever you go, and defeated by you, touching the feet. Inhabitants, they went back. So now Krishna's coming back, same Krishna, standing at Kurukshetra. He's going to talk about Dharma, Bhakti. So as he's talking about Bhakti, some thoughts from the Udipana of Kurukshetra, stimulant, must reach that high point, touching it. So he drifts there. Arjuna's bringing him back with his questions, and in the end he drifts once and for all. Arjuna kills all the demons. So anyway, they had gone back to Godhead. No, it's a good question because we should wonder what happened. Krishna went to Dwarka. All the inhabitants of Dwarka went back to God. He arranged for their annihilation and he left. What about all the people in the Braj? What happened to them? That's the whole Dwarka Leela is for them. That's what it's for, to shed light on the nature of their love indirectly. Because they waited for him. They waited for him and they never left Braj. Even everybody that came to Burukshetra was really a partial manifestation of all the inhabitants. They're always there in Braj, and Krishna's always there in its fullest manifestation on earth. This is very esoteric. But we should wonder, yes, what happened to them? He promised he'd come back. And if he says, well, he breaks his promises sometimes, but not to his devotees. And, and certainly he doesn't allow his devotees' promises to go unfulfilled. And Nanda Maharaj promised he'd come back. Nanamaraj went with him to Mathura and he promised all the inhabitants he'll come back. Don't worry. It took a while, but of course he did. And the only reason he was gone was to glorify them, to show the nature and extent of their measure of their love, to teach us that this is the ideal. And this Mahaprabhu came and centered on. Another question? Just in this historical vein, then Balaram took care of from Harshan, and that was the assembly of sages that was later became the, the speaking of the Bhagavatam with the Sutta Goswami. So Balram established the speaking of the Bhagavatam, made arrangement for the for the Bhagavatam that we have, the 18,000 shlokas. Is that before right. the battle, or was that uh, that's before the battle of Kurukshetra? While the battle of Kurukshetra is going on, Balram came down south, and he set it up for Ramaharshan Sutta to take charge of the Puranas, Puranic literature. He's Pratilam, a mixed caste. So this, all these 
Smriti, Shastra, Puranas, and so where they was given, he was given charge of. He got the seat. Of course, Bhagavatam is coming in that. Bhagavatam is the essence of the highest of all the scripture, but it's coming in that kind of a packaging. So Baldev set the stage for the Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam is, uh, yes, Krishna, had, Krishna, what is the verse? After the departure of Krishna, Krishna Sadhamo Pagate, Dharma Gyanani Bisaha. With the departure of Krishna, then where will we get light from? What is the answer? From this Bhagavatam, it's like brilliant, like the sun. Bhagavatam is the very heart of Krishna. So what is Bhagavad Gita then? Bhagavad Gita is the intelligence of Krishna. Shikshaguru. Tadami buddhi yogam tam yenamamu payantite. Krishna is giving divine intelligence. If you act according to divine intelligence, then you can access the heart of Krishna. Enter the Krishna Lila. That is the whole idea. From Bhagavad Gita to Srimad Bhagavatam. But you don't go there with your shoes on. That's the point we discussed today. <laughs> you have to leave your shoes at the door. Okay, so let us stop there and take some prasad.